You're listening to another episode of the Anavivo podcast. Thank you for your time. Welcome back to the episode today. We're on part three of the three parts for the accident. Dun, dun, dun. We left off uh, part one. If you were listening, if you uh, haven't caught up yet, go back and listen to part one. That was the sort of the intro for my parents, Bev and Clay Miller, who got in this really nasty ATV accident uh, over in Bora Bora uh, for the 35th anniversary. We left off with them at the scene of the accident. And then we jumped into part two, which was the extraction team point of view. And we had uh, Jessica Boyd and Nate Miller on the air, and that was great. And now we're back for part three, and we're going to continue on the chronology of the um, timeline for you guys uh, and how that played out, but also then go into the faith and then the future and what that looks like. And as a reminder for all of those listening, this is not a professional podcast. So if you need to turn down the volume or up the volume, or if you need to pause it at any point, or if you hear uh, dogs in the background or the crunchling, cr- crunchily things of chocolate as we <laughs> nibble on dark chocolate, uh, don't be offended. So, all right, let's begin. Mom. Okay, I think we left off in the veterinary's clinic and... Um, then I think, I don't know if we mentioned that we were loaded onto a helicopter and even in all of my pain, I thought to myself, I'm rapidly checking off things on my bucket list, but not in a way that I planned on doing it. (laughs) Helicopter ride was on your bucket list. (laughs) Right. It was not. Um, so at that point, Clay was pretty out of it and not even, um, in the past at, at the other clinic, he had been looping. What happened? What happened? Bev, are you okay? Are you okay? Bev, what happened? What happened? Bev, are you okay? Over and over. And he was silent. And so I was very concerned with that. But the vet was with us and she was monitoring every, everything. And she was on the phone with, or the radio with the doctors in Reatea. So they get him loaded off and into the ER. And the doctor that was going to attend to me, came out to the helicopter and he started speaking in French. And I just looked at him and shook my head and said, I only speak English. And it was so sweet, but he just kind of put his hand on his cheek and he said, oh no. And then they got me into the ER, but then there were doctors and nurses that could speak um, English pretty well. So, um, Clay doesn't remember what was going on in the ER, but they had us in beds um, side by side with a curtain between us. And I kept pulling the curtain Mm. back so that I could see him. And I had one doctor and one nurse that were attending to me, but he had a ring of attendants around his bed and they were working frantically. And then the um, cyclic questions started up again. Mm. Um, what happened? What happened? Bev, are you okay? What happened? What happened? And um, in the midst of that, he would talk to the doctors and, um, you know, in pain or whatever. And at one point they were trying to take off his wedding ring. And I thought, oh boy, that ring is not coming off his fingers. (laughs) Um, But he was literally fighting them. You're not taking it off. I haven't had it off in 35 years. So Clay, why don't you jump ahead to 
the ring incident. Yeah, so Bev's talking about August 6th, Saturday, August 6th, the day of the accident. My last thought, again, was being on the ATV and thinking, I'm too far left, I'm too far left. My very next memory now is waking up in San Diego at the Navy Hospital on August 21st, and uh, I was strapped into a bed, and eventually found out I was in the ICU, but I was strapped into a bed. I couldn't move anything except my forearms, and my, each hand was uh, tied up with uh, tubes and wires. And I l- looked at my left hand, and my ring finger was bloody and scabbed over, and my ring was missing. And so all I thought for the next couple of days, nobody explained anything to me, all I thought for the next couple of days was somebody had beat me up, stolen my ring, and... Um, injected me with something, and that's why I was stuck hallucinating in a hospital. I had no idea where I was, where my wife was, or what happened to my ring. So in the meantime, in Tahiti, um, I'm jumping ahead as well. Um, When I got to the big hospital where Clay was, Nate said, Mom, I have something for you, but I don't know if you want me to hang on to it or if you want to hang on to it. And he handed me Dad's ring. Mm. And, of course, I started crying. (laughs) And I was so happy. And so by the time we were able to see him in San Diego, he um, was not able to speak because he was intubated, but he could write on a whiteboard, and we were trying really hard to get him to be able to write on a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And I think, was it you that was mm-hmm. with me? And one, at one point, he writes, ring. And I held up my finger, and I said, I've got it, I've got it. And then he writes, wallet, question mark. And I said, I have it, I have it. And then he writes money because we had had, you know, quite a bit of money in our wallet, both Tahitian and American. And I said, we've got it. We've got it. Well, what he didn't know at that point is that that Tahitian money, which was such a God thing that we had taken out so much, you know, uh, Tahitian money, it it really helped uh, Nate and Jess when they were in Tahiti. So I just told them, this is the money you use to spend. So, okay, so that's kind of a little side point, but so uh, real quick was was it was the was that Nate then that beat up dad to take the ring? Yeah. Is that how that happened? I'm really shocked, right? I'm shocked. <laughs> Were the you money. there when they took the ring off? I asked them to take it off, and I knew I can't believe I can't, that. Yeah, I can't remember. So just beat up dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was the second day no, I it, I can't remember if it was the first or the second day when I saw you the first day, which was Tuesday or Tuesday? Wednesday when I got down. Yeah, yeah. It was Wednesday, and we had a, a kind of a longer conversation. And I met all of your team and was just trying to figure out what was going on. And then Thursday, you started to look pretty sick um, and weren't able to talk very much. So I think it was Thursday, and at that point, we were trying to figure out like, okay, what are our hard like <clears throat> goals here to get him on the plane? And one of them was your spleen. Um, being okay. And so someone came in and did an ultrasound and I just asked her, your fingers were pretty puffy and I asked her to take it off. And she spent, I think probably a significant amount of time when I wasn't there wiggling it off. Um, and, it and had to. And gave it peeling, to the, <laughs> peeling the skin off in the process. Yeah. But, yeah. but I was shocked that they didn't cut it off. And yeah. by the time I saw him, he was so bloated. Well, yeah, then he had yeah. short-term congestive heart failure, and so I think that would have they would have cut it off if they hadn't wiggled it off at that point. Yeah, so. yeah. So we're going to pause real quick. 
So back to the ER, I um, kept pulling the curtain back to, to look at him, and one of the doctors kept pulling it forward again. And finally, my nurse just pulled it a little bit so that I could see him and I could see what was going on. And they had me hooked up to morphine, but then they took me out for x-rays. My doctor... This is in Reatea. This is in Reatea. Yeah. My doctor said, I don't think you're going to make it onto the airlift with him to mm-hmm. Tahiti. Mm-hmm. And that really, really bothered me. And I, I said, please put me on it. I don't care how much it costs, put me on it. And he said, well, I'm going to see. Let's go get x-rays, and, and then I'm going to see. So he came back to me in the x-ray room, and he goes, well, the good news... He said, I have good and bad news. The good news is you have a broken pelvis in three places. And I say that's good because that might get you on the flight. He said, the bad news is I don't think it's bad enough to get you on the flight. Mm. And so I just said, all right, try to get me on there. And, um, you know, at that point, I also had kind of a whiplash going on because it was just so painful in my neck. Mm. So I had asked one of the nurses, I said, please, please, can I have a a pillow. And she just looked at me and she said, Oh, we don't have pillows. <laughs> and I said, okay, okay. How about a blanket? I'm freezing. Oh, we don't have blankets. And I now know it's because family members are what bring in all of those mm-hmm. things. So I was, I was just, at that point I was just watching clay and more concerned about him. And, um, at some point, they kept bringing him in and out for different CAT scans and x-rays and all this kind of stuff. And at one point then, they had to puncture his, in I don't know what you call it, Jess. Like but a chest tube? Yeah, a chest tube in the side of his chest. And I thought, I'm, I'm laying here watching this. <laughs> and, and they did it. Of course, he was drugged and really out of it by that point. But they, that's when I realized, okay, it's more than just a broken shoulder. Because at that point, I thought, well, it's a broken shoulder, maybe some ribs. Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, then they got that tube into place, and pretty soon then he was on his way <laughs> yeah. to Tahiti Yeah. without and, me. <laughs> and that would um, begin the next week-long separation between you two. Right, right. And you're left in this little clinic. On a no name well, island. Well, it is a no. I'm in Reatea. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, with a hospital, a, just an it's island, a, a hospital with no mm-hmm. blankets, no pillows, <laughs> with a room, you've got, you know, barely a window. Yeah. yeah no, no TV. No clock. Oh, even. nothing. What did nothing. you have to tell time by? I um. A I, there was a clock there was and a there rooster. was a television, but what good was that going to do when I spoke no French? And a rooster. And a rooster outside that <laughs> crowed all day long. He just decided that he was going to keep me company. And what were you wearing? So I, um, yeah, so they get me up to my room and I'm still in my clothes, muddy, you know, mud packed in my feet, mud under my fingernails. I'm just wearing what I was wearing on the ATV. And I get up there and everyone is so incredibly nice. I mean, they're just, they're kind, they're gentle, they're just nice. And I'm in this bed, and I finally, oh, and I had sent Clay's phone and charger with him, mm-hmm. thinking, okay, then we'll have some communication, or at least he can communicate with the kids. I still had absolutely no idea how, how bad he was. Mm-hmm. And um, my phone had maybe minutes left on the battery. And sure enough, um, by the time I was up in my room, so that was Saturday night, probably midnight by the time I got up there or so, 
um, by Sunday morning, it was gone. There was nothing uh, on my phone and I didn't have the adapter that I needed. Mm -hmm. So I just, I'm laying there and one of my nurses, one of my favorite nurses, her name is Poi, which means pearl. And she comes in and she's so tender. And I said, I just need a pillow. I need something. And so she brought me, um, those bed, um, pads, bed pads, eight of them all just stacked up. She goes, pillow. And, and I thought, Oh, what a relief. It was just such a relief. Mm. And, um, so I think at that time, by that time I had heard from you, Tim. Yeah. You, you'd actually heard from me previously because I was on the phone trying to get you on that flight to okay. Tahiti. So, so we'd been talking back and forth. I had been talking you to you. I didn't and, remember that. Okay. Um, the, the, uh, flight, uh, pilots and staff and the doctors there. Um, but only via dad's phone initially. And then when you sent dad's phone with him, then via the, the one hospital phone that I mm-hmm. had to call to reach you. And mm-hmm. so that started, uh, the next several days of you basically in isolation because you didn't have the phone charger a- right. adapter. And, um, and no way to communicate. You couldn't use the hospital phone to no, call out. No, they would bring it in. Yeah. So you were alone. You had uh, no f- no friends or family. Um, no phone. And I uh, had COVID. And, and you had COVID. <laughs> and I which, asymptomatic. Thankfully, asymptomatic, but. which I don't believe I had COVID because just a week prior to that, we had to test to, to get, get on there. the airplane. Yeah. And we were COVID free. And then. Sure enough, both of us pop positive in the ER, and I'm like, I know I don't have. So COVID. now you're even more isolated from the staff. And but the that was okay because I had my own room. Yeah, yeah, that worked out. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I started. You didn't I, hear about that. You couldn't hear. About I did not. Know. You couldn't hear about one us. Facebook. I'm not Facebook. We have a FaceTime with you and Clay when he's in Tahiti before he's intubated. So I think it's Sunday evening it could have been be, between my phone yeah no and it we wouldn't have, have been because you didn't get there until tuesday i didn't but you have some we have we have something we have something i'm not sure when that was or how it was i do remember one conversation yes. between the two of you i do remember that yeah um, but in my mind i was thinking that you were holding the phone but maybe one of dad the was phone. holding the phone when he got his first block spinal nerve, block, nerve yeah. block put in um he was okay lucid enough to then use the phone himself but okay um, but your phone wouldn't have worked until we got you on the but i do remember that facetime so maybe my phone didn't die until that's been like sunday mid sunday or something something. yeah so then i i almost went into panic mode and i thought okay not panic that i was cut off from you guys because tim you were very faithful to call me several times a day and Um, but, but truly I had, I did not have my Bible. I did not have my phone that has my Bible app on it. And so I would lay there and I said, Lord, I know your scriptures, but I cannot recall them. Mm -hmm. And so just laying there with the Lord and he started bringing back to me Psalm 23. And that is one that all of us memorize as little kids. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was memorized in probably King James Version, but I just started it. And I, I started just memorizing or re- repeating Psalm 23, and then it started coming back more and more. Hmm. 
So my life verse came back to mind, and it's from Psalm 119, 165, and it says, those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. And in my mind, when I first started memorizing that verse, it was years ago, and I thought kind of the idea that nothing is going to pull the rug out from under your feet. Mm-hmm. You stand firm on God's word and nothing's... And I thought, okay, Bev, then let's let's prove this. This is... You have called God your Lord since you were 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Do you mean it or not? Mm-hmm. So Psalm, Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's the passage that came back to mind right away. Um, but truly I was by myself. I was in this room. If I can describe it for you, it is a room bare. It's a bare rectangular room. I can't see from my bed. I cannot see out the door. I'm behind a, uh, like a corner. There's one long window up towards the ceiling, um, to my, uh, right-hand side running through the room and there's that rooster just growing away, growing away. So at least I knew that it was day or night. Um, my belongings were up on a counter next to me, but I couldn't reach them because there was no way I could even move. I could not move myself. Um, and just bare white walls. And I thought, we, this would be like a what a prison hospital must look like. And yet everyone who walked through that door had just on a beautiful smile and just um, greeted me, even though most of them couldn't speak English. And those who could speak English were very shy about speaking English, which I just kept encouraging them, you're doing it better than I ever could. (laughs) Um, But I was, um, uh, you know, I was alone. I didn't have, still didn't have pillows. I explained how Poi brought me um, those bed pads Right. Eight of right. them. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't even think, it's hard to remember, but I don't even think they had a sheet yet at that point. And keep in mind, I'm a Pacific Northwest girl, and hot weather is hard. And so we're in the middle of, you know, hot weather. And so the, the rooms did have air conditioning, and they were individual. And so... Mm-hmm. They had it turned about as low as it could go, which was hilarious because they'd walk in and they'd say, they would just shiver, you know, to me and and say, cold, cold. And I'd say, no, no, it's just right. And pretty soon I noticed they were coming in with sweaters on. (laughs) (laughs) So um, very, very much alone, Mm. um, separated other than like Tim's phone calls to me, landline. And my life verse, Psalm 119, 165, really was my anchor. And it says, um, those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. And when I memorized it years ago, I thought, boy, I could put in there, and nothing causes the rug to be pulled out from under them. And that's how I was feeling. There was this undescribable, indescribable peace Hmm. that was encompassing me, even though I was blocked off from the world and I was still covered in mud. I was in my 
same clothes. They don't have um, hospital robes. Um, I'm in my same clothes that I was in from the accident. And um, at one point, one of the doctors came in and said, now, what, what can we do for you? And I just said, if someone could wash my feet, that would be great. <laughs> and he just, he was kind of, I think, embarrassed. And I didn't mean to embarrass him, but mm. I just had mud mm. caked everywhere. So um, on like day three, <laughs> yeah, it was day three. And then all of a sudden, I can't remember, Tim, did you tell me someone was coming to visit me? Yeah, I had um, given you a heads up that this gal uh, was going to come visit you and try to deliver you. Really, the most crucial part was the communication piece and giving you an adapter so you could, uh, one, charge your phone, but then to be able to use it so you didn't feel so disconnected the world, use your Bible app or be able to uh, FaceTime your family or connect with dad or whatever. And so that was the crucial part of it. But also, of course, the comforts of, of home, a pillow and a blanket and things like that, <clears throat> real food. And so... Um, How did you find... Her name was Samantha. How did you find her? Yeah, so she was uh, a godsend from uh, just doing some research and... Uh, trying to find folks that would deliver anything, um, in this case, a charger. And so uh, it just worked out in God's sovereign plan that the person who I ended up finding was um, just this wonderful, turned out to be this wonderful woman. <laughs> and and uh, um, and so I'll let you describe the interaction with her. And she brought you food, I recall at once as well, that the nurses were not Well, we had food. I had about. Oh, <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> they kept telling me, you can't have that. You can't have that. Because, you know, I'm not going to go into details. But when you're in the hospital and you're on a lot of drugs, your body doesn't work <laughs> properly. So I was obedient. And I, I think after the first piece of chocolate, I put the rest away. But yes, this woman walked into my room and she was... Not a nurse. Not a nurse. And of course, I'm in... I've, you know supposedly have COVID. So I can't really see her. She's decked out from head to toe with a mask on. And she comes in and introduces herself. And she said, your, your son wanted me to bring you a blanket and a pillow and um, deodorant. And I looked everywhere for a Bible. I couldn't find a Bible. And, and she's uh, an English Bible. And um, so she, she kind of handed me all these things and, you know, the chocolate and stuff. And she said, um, what else can I bring you? And I said, oh, you've done so much already. I said, do you have, I, I need an adapter. And right. Cause she didn't have it that first time. She, she didn't have find it. One. Right. And then she realized, I think what I needed. Mm -hmm. And she said, um, oh, I used to live in Australia. I have one of those. So she came and let me use it then the rest of the time. It was just... And it and was her own. It, it's like, for was some her reason, own. you know, none of the stores there sell right. adapters for... Right, phones. because why would they? Right. They wouldn't need them. And so um, truly, I cried every time I saw her. And um, the only way often that I could express thank you was to put my hand over my heart and just pat it to say, thank you, thank you. <laughs> So um, the next day she shows up and, and I was, I, I had meals at the hospital that, you know, they did, of course, feed me. But um, every morning breakfast was a baguette 
and chocolate milk, <laughs> which for the first day was great. Mm-hmm. Every time after that, it was like, uh. <laughs> but she would bring me smoothies and fruit from her own trees. And every single day she came. What's her name? Oh, her name is Sam. And I call her my angel. And I looked up actually, once I finally got my phone, I looked or Samantha. up. Samantha. I'm sorry. It is Samantha. <laughs> she goes by Samantha. <laughs> Yeah, and she was I, your angel. I looked up her name, and it says "gift of God," mm. and I thought, "Oh, how perfect this is! You truly are my gift of God, gift from God." And I, I told her that, and she, um, um, eventually, she has two uh, daughters and a husband who's from Tasmania, which is a whole nother story. That was fun. She um, came every single day, and she would bring one of her family members. So eventually I met the whole family and I just was in love with this family. And her husband kept saying, I'm not coming in. I'm not coming in because she's going to cry and Mm. I don't want to be around that. (laughs) Well, eventually he came in and he's this big, tall man. And when he said, I'm from Tasmania, I almost lost it because that was one of Clay's and my favorite vacations. Mm. It was when I was able to, um, well, you explain, Clay, the first time we ever went to Tasmania. It was, uh, the year was uh, 1999, and it was my last deployment in the Navy. I was on the USS uh, Abraham Lincoln, and we had gone to the Persian Gulf, and now we're headed back, and we stopped in the west coast of Australia in Perth, and then we steamed around the southern bottom part of uh, Australia. And a uh, side note, we hit a whale <laughs> on the on the way down there. We were just running so fast and uh, it caused the whole aircraft carrier to shake when we hit it. It was just tragic. And then we pulled into Hobart, Tasmania, and Bev flew from Washington State. We were stationed in Everett, Washington. She flew from Washington State uh, to Tasmania, Hobart, and we got to spend a week together down in uh, Tasmania driving around and seeing the sights. Which was cool because I was a school teacher in Papua New Guinea, and that's for a whole nother podcast, but that's how I met Dad. And um, Tasmania is part of Australia. So Jared is in Australia. He grew up in Australia. But he and a buddy decide to jump the ferry to get to Australia, and Samantha and her friends happened to be in, in Australia, and that's where they met. So they got married, and um, they lived there for a while, and then they came back to Reatea, where she is from. Anyways, he asked me at one point, he said, hey, what's your, you know, what's your college football team? And I said, well, I'm from San Diego, San Diego so I follow the um, San Diego State Aztecs. And he knew all about college football. I said, but really what I do is I follow pro ball more. And I said, my team is, and before I could even get it out, he said, the Seahawks. And I said, are you a Seahawks fan? He goes, well, I'm really a Kansas City Chiefs fan, but I like Russell Wilson. He goes, too bad he's with the Broncos now. (laughs) And so we just had a great time talking and kind of getting to know each other that way. And Samantha was saying, oh, yes, everyone on the street knows when American football is uh, is in season because you can hear it blasting from our house, and Jared watches every single game. That's hilarious. 
So she came by. She was a godsend. She came by uh, every day and, and brought you goodies, and then she left you with a parting gift uh, at the end before Jess came and picked you up. Yes. Or did she bring those? She came to Tahiti, actually. Well, but she gave me this gift because she didn't know she was going right, to see right. me. So on the day, and I'm going to back up just a little bit because um, you and Nate, Jess, were planning on how to get me there, right? And probably with Tim. And Tim, didn't you have to um, orchestrate? We had to we had to buy the tickets for the, her Yeah, the trip. last uh, part two, we talked about that uh, portion of the extraction and booking the, the back half of the commercial plane so you could lay flat on um, a piece of wood, basically, and <laughs> get you from Reatea to Tahiti to be with Dad. Uh, and so this had been about a week now. You've been right. separated. So I am still in the hospital. It's now Saturday, a full week. And the nurses all were planning that Jessica would come and fly me out on Sunday. So I had to have another COVID test. Tahiti was requiring that I had another COVID test before I came to their hospital. Mm-hmm. So Poi gave me the test, and she said she was looking at me very shyly, and she said, do you want me to stay here to tell you the results? And I said, yes. And I think she was nervous that I was going to still be positive. Mm. And sure enough, a week later, I'm negative. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really, really anxious about, anxious, good anxious about Jess coming. And Samantha said, we'll pick her up from the airport. We'll, you know. Which was amazing for me. (laughs) Yeah. So sweet and so kind. So I see why you're sisters now. (laughs) (laughs) So Jessica walks in my room. It was maybe 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night, Saturday night. She walks in. She just gives me a big hug. She sits down on my bed, and she says, Now, Aunt Beth, I've got from now until we get to Tahiti broken into 15-minute segments. And I thought to myself, oh, thank goodness. (laughs) I mean, it was truly amazing that I I just felt that relief. Mm. truly that relief that someone that could speak my language was going to, and that I loved was going to take care of me. <laughs> and so, um, I should back up. I had, um, uh, you know, I had been given a shower in a, I was in the wheelchair and the wheelchair truly could only fit in, <laughs> I mean, barely fit yeah. in this little tiny shower. And, but then I had no clean clothes to change into. So one of the nurses, uh, no, one of the CNAs came in and she said, I have a friend in her very broken English. I have a friend who makes dresses Mm. for the hospital. Would you like one? Mm. I said, oh, that would be wonderful if I could borrow one. She goes, no, 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 you keep it. So it was (laughs) this very cute little Tahitian sundress. And um, she goes, what color? I have pink and purple. And I said, purple, please. And so um, um, anyways... So that, so I was at least clean by the time Jess came. <laughs> and so sure enough, um, I think you walked back to your Airbnb um, that night, and then you were there first thing in the morning, and so was Samantha. Yep. And her whole family with fruit and um, just all kinds of things and gifts. And, and this, a couple of the CNAs had come in, and one had given me, um, her name was Gina, gave me... Vanilla pods, a whole package of vanilla pods in a Ziploc bag. And those are precious. Samantha said those are very precious to people, you know. 
And um, so that, and I had just other things, people lining up to give me hugs and say goodbye. And Samantha and her family were all quietly waiting. Mm. And then at the very end, she handed me this picture. It's a picture of a, a woman. Um, she doesn't really know the story behind it. It's a painting. and she, um, But she has the twin of it at her house. She said, oh, wow. now you can have its twin at your oh, house. Cool. So that, and then she gave me um, a Tahitian <laughs> Bible, which is precious. It's yeah, just precious. Yeah. And um, she said, I know you can't read it. And Jared jumped in and said, but it can be a, 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 a conversation starter on your bookshelf. <laughs> and then um, she gave me um, a, a box and I opened it and had some, some, lotions in it mm. and tahitian lotions are really cool it's kind of waxy at first but well if you think of coconut oil how it comes out solid but immediately sure. starts melting that's yeah. what these oils are these um lotions mm. so she gave me two of those but she said um the real gift is underneath and so i lifted these lotion bottles and there were 19 black pearls from mm. from tahiti Wow. And it's funny because just, um, I think on Friday or Thursday or Friday in Bora Bora, before the accident, Clay and I had been in town out going out to eat and we were just looking at black pearls and jewelry and stuff like this. And it was on Friday. It was on Friday. And some of them are pink and some are purple and explain to them how they get these colors. So these are, uh, cultured pearls. Uh, they take oysters, these special kind of oysters, they have them in a special place in the lagoons and they pull the oyster out and they open them up carefully. And then they take a piece of oyster shell from another, from a broken shell. And they take the, it's the mother of pearl that you've heard of. And they take the color that they want to create. So if they want to do a black pearl, they'll take a little piece of black from the mother of pearl, little speck of it, and they'll embed it in their oyster and then close it back up and set it back down on this grate at the bottom of the lagoon. And I don't know how long it takes a year or two years later, they go down and they pick the oyster back up and open it up. And the oyster has created a pearl, the same color as the embedded piece of mother pearl. Hmm. So it's like a seed that, that gets planted. Interesting. So they can uh, pretty much um, determine the color of these pearls. Hmm. So Samantha explained to me, these were all, um, what would you call irregular pearls? You know, and some of them are very irregular. They have like a little nodule on them or things like that, misshapen. And she explained that way back in the day, her dad would go to the jewelers and buy them all up at dirt cheap because the jewelers didn't want them. But nowadays, everybody loves these cool, you know, whatever, (laughs) groovy looking pearls. And so they're worth quite a bit now. Wow. And so I have these 19 pearls, and I've got an idea of kind of some things well, I'm going to do with them. Just what a blessing to be able to, to um, reach those many peop- that, that many people in the week you were there. I mean, for God to have orchestrated leaving you there for, for them, really. I mean, you were alone the first couple of days, but then uh, you used that time not even having a journal or paper to write anything. I mean, literally just building relationships. And mm-hmm. by the end of one week, how many, you know, how many lives we, we can't even Mm-mm. imagine how many lives you've touched and how the Lord has worked through you and those people. And I mean, that was sort of a celebrity event for them, I'm sure, <laughs> in their, Something, in their right. hospital. 
which was... My therapist, a very young therapist who was a traveling therapist from France, and he started asking me um, political questions. And of course, he was surprised Mm. at my take on it. But then he also started asking me, well, can you show me pictures of where you live? And Mm. he was just blown away. He said, I'm going to travel to Seattle to be a therapist one day. (laughs) (laughs) And that was fun. But yes, the the people I met and... um, and the way God met me, mm. it was amazing. And just my best friend, Holly, back in the States in Virginia, she was, um, she finally sent me this one question. We would actually talk on the phone. And she said, you know, I was sitting in and I just thought, God, what, how is Bev going to cope with this? Mm. And she just felt like she started writing down one, two, three, four. And one of the very first things was, I am God, I am Bev's God, you know, and, and so as Holly was truly being my encourager on the sidelines, that was, that was amazing. And, and so many others too. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, yeah. So many people wanted to be on the plane to you in that first day anyway, including specifically Holly, but yeah, lots of people wanted to be over there too. So it's, great to, to be able to be on this end and see how you impacted um, the lives of those folks there, but also how many hundreds of people around uh, the world were impacted by that event as well. You know, totally unplanned, and, um, and it gave them an opportunity to witness your peace in the midst of something that should be truly chaotic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think, um, Jess, you said that Uncle Clay, it was by Thursday before Nate got there, right? Yeah, so we've, you and I FaceTimed with him on Wednesday, and he, you explained what had happened to him, and you had probably like a 10-minute conversation or maybe 15, and then Thursday, we, you and I, I connected you two via FaceTime again in the morning. Thursday, okay. And he just couldn't handle past like five minutes. And just seeing you, seeing your face on FaceTime made his body just kind of, it looked like he was running a marathon because he was so overcome with emotion. Mm. Just seeing your face. Um, and then maybe two songs. So we cut that pretty short. And then Thursday night he got very sick. And, and I think somewhere on Thursday you called me, Tim. And you said, Mom, I don't think you understand how, how dire the situation is. And you said, Dad could die any minute. And that's when it hit me. Oh, it's not just his shoulder. It's truly life and, life and death. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I might be going home alone. And immediately on that thought was... But you'll go with me, God. You're going to, we're going to work this out. Mm-hmm. We'll work this out. And I know that sounds callous, but Clay is my best friend. I can't imagine life without him. So, I mean, we have a very, very deep relationship. Mm-hmm. So that was going on. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, it just was every step of the way, God meeting me, mm-hmm. you know, in the darkness. Yeah. So 
now let's switch sides. Dad's over there just chilling. <laughs> well, do you want to? Dad's over here in a medical I know, coma. <laughs> I know he's been stuck, oh. but she had this kind of big event on the airplane. I don't know if oh, you yeah, want to yeah. describe yeah, that. Yeah, let's wrap that uh, That's there. right. Yeah, and then we can we'll, wrap up with that. We'll, yeah. So it was very painful for me to be moved from one point to another. And um, they got me on a backboard and they moved me um, up these vertical stairs in the airplane. And then they somehow attached me to the wall of the airplane. And I was so close to the luggage racks that I thought, this is just like being in an MRI. Mm -hmm. And so I started just doing some breathing techniques and that kind of thing. And, um, oh, and they had closed a curtain because now they were loading the people. Normal people. <laughs> Normal people. And non-medical flight. And then they opened the curtain and I was just I was just I had my eyes closed. I was breathing. I was, you know, reciting scripture in my head and stuff. And I feel this little tickle in my ear. And it was Jessica across the across the aisle there and she's putting in her little earbud into my ear with my with lots of, you know, of my music that I love, Christian music. And then that was about a 45-minute flight. Yeah, an hour. Okay. And then I was the last one off the plane. And that was very painful, jostling me off the plane. And Yeah, they couldn't disconnect the stretcher. It was supposed to be like unsnap and just pull out from underneath you. So they had to manhandle you and lift you up um, to pull it out. And it just looked like you were about to pass out. Yeah, I don't remember that, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> but I do just remember thinking how very, very uh, painful that whole entire trip was. So painful that even now I think, you probably should have just muscled through it and sat up, Bev. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know. I don't think I, don't I could think have the done clear I couldn't have done that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I mentioned this on the last podcast. Something that was so you know um, interesting to me was... You know, you're pretty punch drunk after that because they really did manual manhandle you and um you know you're kind of loopy and in the 15 minute you know ambulance ride when you're still in pain and still loopy you just talked about how you knew that clay was the man for you you know back <laughs> yeah. all these years how you knew that you wanted to marry him and how um and then you talked about my parents how much yeah how you know, highly you think of them, but it was just like a very sweet moment of like, you should be maybe crying, but you're just like pouring out your love and praise to other people. I just thought that was so sweet. Oh, that was, that was interesting. When they brought me into my um, room, they wheeled me up into my room. The first thing I thought was it has a purple door. <laughs> and that's significant to me because in my mind, I thought, God, you know, purple is my favorite color. <laughs> and Purple is a color of royalty, and I am a daughter of the Almighty God, yeah. the King. And so I just thought, even my door is purple. <laughs> and that day, I we had talked about, hey, here's our game plan. You know, we're going to try and conserve our energy um, so that you can see Clay that day. Um, and I was just so impressed. And, you know, we knew that he was in a critical state. Um, and we, we also talked about, Hey, we don't know what we're going to be walking into when we get there. Um, and you muscled through you, you, you know, got a pain medicine settled for maybe an hour, let Nate come and say hi. And then you went down and saw him. Yeah. Um, and even that wasn't a, uh, easy, you know, the wheelchair is made out of, um, 
PVC pipe. PVC mm-hmm. pipe. And it's not a smooth little wheelchair, you know, but, and, and there are not transitions in the doorways like you would imagine. There's bumps and lumps and, mm-hmm. and just walking into, you know, we had a conversation of like, hey, what's the reality of what we're going to go yes. see? Yes. Um, so just emotionally and spiritually draining and, you were there. You were ready for it. And I think we had to, I had to, you know, kind of be very firm with the medical staff. No, she will go and see them. I understand they're both COVID positive, but she will go today and every day until she leaves. She will yeah. go see him. Yeah. Well, remember, I wasn't COVID anymore. Yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> At that point. Yeah. And that was Saturday or Sunday? Sunday, Sunday. the 13th. Yeah, Sunday. 13th, I think. So yeah. that was uh, eight days after the accident. And now you're walking in to see dad, Clay, your husband. Dad has been on his back now for eight days. Dad is not. Well, I think Jessica said he's. They've been rotating. Well, they've him. been. I mean, he's yeah. been horizontal for oh, eight right, days. Right. He's been in and out of a coma. He's been in and out of lucidity. He hasn't eaten anything for eight days. So you can imagine what that does to your body for eight days. He hasn't shaved for eight days. He's been. Uh, no, they shaved him. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. He was I shaved. Think they shaved. Did they shave him after? Um, it wasn't a real Nate shave. Was it was like yeah. a it was a campground cursory. Yeah, oh, camp- I don't know. <laughs> but he was. Swol- and then he had these big swollen marks yeah. on his head because they did the rotisserie chicken thing mm-hmm. to bed try to sores. help his lungs, and so he had these big bed sores on his face. His whole body, you it was so swollen, you felt like if I touch it, mm-hmm. he's going to burst. Yeah. So yeah. So that's what you walked into. We walked into it that well. I didn't walk, but <laughs> they rolled me right up next to his bed where I could hold his hand. And um, Jessica put on his music. I mean, I talked to him. He was, of course, non-responsive. But um, then a tear came out, and I thought, you know what? He might be non-responsive, but his ears work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. All right. So, Dad, I imagine this next segment will probably be 30 seconds. What do you recall? <laughs> I was still in the medical coma, so I don't remember any of this. <laughs> but, you know, it, it brings up the point that, and this was something that I thought of when I did wake up in California, we are made in God's image. And, you know, and you have to ask the question, what does that actually mean? Well, God is a triune God. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're, we're a triune being. We're body, spirit, and soul. And my body was broken. My body was... Uh, is in the worst it's ever been, and it was literally in the medical coma on fet- fentanyl? Uh, t- propofol, fentanyl, nerve block, yeah, and then that. rocaronium at that point for the, the <laughs> medical coma. Macaroni. <laughs> I don't remember any of that. Um, but my uh, spirit wasn't asleep. My spirit was not in a coma. And my soul, you know, my mind, my emotions, my will, my conscience... Uh, was partly subconscious at that point, but uh, but my my you know there was my like you said my ears were still working and it was a channel you know into my soul and and uh, and I think you know looking back on it later on you know when somebody's in trauma of course the medical team does heroics to treat the body the physical but the soul and the spirit need to be treated too. You know, we've got to come and come alongside people. And you did that, Jessica, with Bev, when you were providing music to her. It just calmed her, you know, when she needed it. People did that when they touched me or when they put on music that I 
could listen to or shared the word of God with me or, you know, loved on me and stuff like that, that probably did nothing for my body, but it, it comforted my soul and it made, made this whole process bearable. So you are, what, do, do you remember anything over, uh, from, from August 6th, the accident? Uh, I'm shaking my head. I don't remember anything from literally just before the accident until I woke up in Balboa Naval Hospital in California on the 21st. So from the 6th to the 21st. With me or with the nurse? With the doctors and nurses, not with you. I saw you on the third day, the 24th, uh, 23rd. So I don't remember anything between just before the accident and waking up in the hospital on the 21st. So, okay, so yeah, so you, you've, obviously you were FaceTiming a couple times, you were talking to mom a little bit, talked to me, talked to Jess and Nate. And yeah, no memory of that. No, no memory. Do you, do you recall any, um, when, when we had talked to you in Balboa, you had had uh, nightmares and um, hallucinating and things like that, but was that all? Were you cognizant of any of that, or is that all um, stuff that you kind of remember after the fact? After the fact. It happened uh, when I've, I understand now from talking to Jessica that when I got to the Navy hospital, they took me off all those drugs you mentioned earlier and put me on uh, ketamine, which is a uh, drug that allows your, you to be sedated but doesn't interfere with your breathing or your heart. So it's a, it's a pro thoracic cardio drug, uh, but it's got a side effect of making you huge, hugely hallucinogenic. I mean, it's, I was coming up with all these weird dreams, uh, from the 21st until they extubated me. And so when I woke up, I was in the middle of a really bad dream. <laughs> so yeah, so you, uh, what did you say when you woke up the first time consciously to the doctor there? Do you remember? Or do you remember just what we told you? <laughs> I, I couldn't talk because I was intubated. I mean, I remember woke up and I reached up and my mouth was so dry because I hadn't been able to have anything in my mouth other than that tube for a couple of weeks. So I reached up and there was a plastic shield over my lips. I couldn't touch my mouth. I couldn't move my legs. They were strapped into the bed. I couldn't move my head. It was in a C collar. I could just move my eyeballs and my forearms. And so I shifted my eyes and I could see outside the window and I could see the other part of the hospital out the window and I could see sky up between the, the third or fourth floor. I knew I was in a hospital and I didn't know where I was. I didn't know why I was there. And I didn't understand why nobody was explaining to me what's going on. And when I lifted my left hand up and saw my bloody ring finger, um, I started going into a, a hallucination that I, I had this deja vu of something that never happened. The deja vu was that I was at Disney World and we were leaving and I was walking to my car and there was a fence that separated the parking lot from the back of one of the studios at, at Disney World and some guy was outside, and he was around some piece of equipment, and he didn't see me, and I could hear him talking on the phone. I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but he was talking about how he was going to scam Disney out of a million dollars, and he was going to go somewhere and do something to scam them out of a million dollars. And I thought, I need to follow him. Dad and, reads too many spy novels. And I followed this guy, 
and he ended up catching me and he goes, you know, I've been watching you watch me the whole time. I knew you were there. You thought you could get away with this. And he injected me with something and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, there I was in the hospital strapped into this bed and <laughs> against my will. And so that's, that was my hallucination that I kind of went through for a couple of days from the 21st till the 23rd. Do you think, uh, do you think uh, David um, or Daniel will come and, and tell you what that means someday? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is what the dream Do you think this is. has anything to do with you uh, reading a lot of Jack Reacher novels or Clive Cussler, Dirk Pitt adventures? Probably, yeah. <laughs> but it, it has a lot to do with ketamine. <laughs> and ketamine mostly. is a... Yeah, everybody I've talked to that's ever been on it said they have exactly the same situation. They just hallucinate. I mean, this, I was laying on my back. All I could see was the ceiling, and I could peek out the window, and the ceiling was literally animated. The lights were a, a lake of fire. The metal vents were robots walking around. I mean, everything was, it was horrible. Yeah. I just yeah. I wanted it to stop. Yeah. Yeah, the first time I talked to you, which was uh, in person, which was months later, it was the Cider Press. Mm. Um, so I think that was maybe September. Mm-hmm. Um you, we talked about that and it, I know you're kind of laughing about it now, but you said that it was a deeply like terrifying experience at the time. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I mean, if uh, there are any doctors or nurses out there listening to this, if you put somebody on ketamine, you've got to come talk to them every 30 minutes and explain to them what's going on <laughs> because otherwise their mind, you know, that part of their soul is going to go off in a wrong direction and come to the come to incorrect conclusions and invent, you know, situations that aren't really true, you know, an alternative reality. But I know that doctors and nurses were at that point trying to keep me alive and take care of me. So, but we kind of skipped from when mom got to Tahiti to now we're in San Diego, but there's something happened in between there. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was, I mean, I was out, so I only know about this after the fact. But... But so Tim and Steven, Steven somehow found online. Are you talking about the flight? The flight. Itself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we t- discussed that in our um, oh. EVAC uh, part two. So, um, but for, for those of us that are skipping part one and part two on listening right now, for some reason, don't go back and listen to part one and then part two. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, Steven got um, figured out that TRICARE would give uh, medevac flights. And so... Uh, started looking into those and talking to, as mentioned in part two, the Singapore team that was over, over, um, oversaw that geographic region and uh, got them on a flight, uh, both mom and dad, from Tahiti to Balboa Naval Medical Hospital. And that was a blessing, as we uh, discussed, because um, it was surrounded by uh, friends that had... Um, uh, where mom had grown up, and she had a good support team there. And then it also had uh, was a blessing because they had a partnership with Scripps Medical Facility there. They had a lot of great uh, uh, top-notch doctors and nurses and staff there. And um, as Jessica had mentioned, it wasn't a step-down bed, which is what Madigan would have been, even though it was a closer hospital to us here in Washington. So all good things, and it, and it wasn't uh, Kaneohe. It wasn't um, out in Hawaii either. So um, all, all good things to get them from Tahiti to Balboa. And I think we mentioned this in that 
the prior podcast episode, but um, things that also happened while you were asleep were, you know, the somehow Tim got in contact with Mark and Renee Perkins and they came and prayed and worshiped with us. And every day you would come and read your daily scripture to clay and pray and worship. Um, and I feel like the staff there maybe didn't have as much interaction as you did with the staff in Reatea, but I feel like they, um, certainly noticed. Um, yeah, you were there a whole nother week. Right with dad in Tahiti, so that was week two. We went up at least once a day, once or twice a day, once or Mm -hmm. twice. Yeah, Yeah. sometimes twice, and Mm. because it took it out of me, but I felt so guilty leaving him that I thought I I can't just come and then leave. But (laughs) I didn't know. I know (laughs) that's what (laughs) Nate and Jessica kept reminding me that dad doesn't really know. (laughs) (laughs) So that was that was um, great to be able to do that. I know that the flight home. Um, I was wide awake the entire time, and um, it was very painful. Mm. But Dad, thankfully, was not awake at all. And I was so, I just kept being so thankful for that. And then um, we land in San Diego, and the ambulance drivers, I'm hearing them speaking English, and I'm just, I'm just sobbing and they get me off the plane and into the ambulance and I'm just sobbing. I said, it's so good to be home. It's so good to be home. And they get us to put you know, put up in our rooms, um, in Balboa. Were we in the same ambulance? No, you were, you were behind me. They Mm. can only fit one gurney in. And so, um, so I said, I actually said goodbye to you. They let me say goodbye to you there in the parking lot. And here's an amazing thing. The CO of the hospital mm-hmm. comes down to my room and she says, we have been waiting a week for you. Yeah. We, we are so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. And evidently she also went up to see dad, which um, I don't know if he remembers, but all of his doctors would come in in the evening and in the morning and give me updates mm. because I was not allowed to go up at all because I get to the hospital in Balboa, they test me for COVID and now all of a sudden I have COVID again. So it's <laughs> negative, positive, negative, positive. And I'm thinking this is just insane. And then the corpsman, he comes in, he goes very shyly. He says, ma'am, I need you to put on this, this hospital gown and I just burst out crying. I said, thank you. Thank you so much. I was still in my clothes from not, I mean, they were different clothes. They were clean clothes because Jessica and Nate had washed them for me. But um, it just, it was so different, I thought. Pillows, blankets <laughs> in your hospital. Yes. And I think, I mean, there's some interesting things that we kind of got away with. You know, there's all these different things with testing for COVID, but there's all these different policies depending on what time of the, you know, how far in this COVID progression it is and what facility is and what country. (laughs) So we were able to visit in the room, you know, we had four or five people in Clay's room at one point. And then we got to the States and it was like, okay, this is a sigh of relief. We know you're in good hands. You're at a great hospital. You'll have a whole pit crew for every body part you have. Um, but all the protocols are <laughs> in place too. Yes. Um, so it was a little bit of a bummer there. Um, but and on I, the flip side, you know, we were very lucky to get to visit him kind of all the time. All the time. And I know that you and Nate were very concerned about not meeting me in San Diego. Mm-hmm. You, you wanted to route your flight through San Diego. 
And I said, no, as long as I know we're going there, um, you guys take off. And so you took off Friday and we didn't take off until Saturday evening. Um, and I felt peaceful about that. Um, and the cool thing about getting to San Diego, which is again, a God thing. I mean, there were three different hospitals that they were kind of trying to get us to. And San Diego is where I grew up. So I have, I have tons of friends there Mm -hmm. and they all jumped in and I had every, uh, the Fisher house is amazing. It's a nonprofit home on the campus of the, of military hospitals. And they house, um, family members who have family members in the hospital. So I had this beautiful two queen size beds in my room because they, well, first you were in the hospital, then they discharged you to to stay with. Oh, I stayed with my friend, uh, Kim Ruby because blessing. And then after that, we got to come back and check you into the Fisher house. Into the Fisher house. You were the first one to come visit us. Every week, somebody else came to take care of me to be my babysitter. (laughs) (laughs) I think that timeline is around when Clay woke up, right? Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So we're in, the flight from uh, Tahiti, I, you know, I understand we took off on the 20th and they had to stop for fuel halfway there. So they went up to Honolulu and got fuel, refueled. This was in a Gulf Stream that's owned by the uh, Dominican Republic. And then they flew from uh, Honolulu to San Diego and they got there on the 21st. And uh, I was taken off of all those bad drugs and put on this ketamine. So I actually woke up on the 21st, and we've talked about that. And for the next 48 to 50 hours or so, I didn't know where I was or why I was there or what was going on. The doctors and nurses were attending to me constantly, like every hour somebody was doing something, drawing blood or um, injecting uh it's taking stuff out of my chest tube. I was hooked up to a, a drain. But again, I didn't know why why any of this was happening. It didn't make any sense to me. And then on the third day, I hear this voice to my right in the doorway said, Hey, Dad, it's Tim. And that was you. And I couldn't move my head, but I moved my eyes over, and I could see somebody was standing there, but I couldn't see you but I noticed that all the curtains in the room were red because I was in an isolation ward for COVID. And you said, hey, Dad, I can't come in because of COVID. you've got COVID, but hang on a second. And at the foot of my bed on the wall above another door was a TV, and the TV came on, and you had gone to a nurse's station or something and gotten onto a camera and a microphone, and you were saying, hey, Dad, it's Tim. You're probably wondering what's going on. <laughs> I'm I'm... Mentally shaking my head because I can't physically shake it, and uh, and uh, you said you, you you told me I you were in a you said you were in a bad ATV accident on Bora Bora, and I immediately shook my head and you know and 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 I thought that I couldn't talk, so I was saying no, that's not true, and then you said you broke your neck and all your ribs and you punctured your lung and your spleen and your liver. And uh, you're at Balboa Naval Hospital in the ICU, and mom's in another room, and she's doing better. She broke her pelvis, and um, and you're going to be okay. And I'm thinking, I mean, uh, my mind raced, and I was just thinking, none of this is true. Because in my mind, we had finished our vacation in Polynesia, and we'd come home, 
and I don't remember any ATV accident. I still don't remember an AT. You know, here here I am all these months later. I still don't remember the accident. Um, so I don't remember what else you talked about, but you left, and I wrestled with that in my mind for two hours, and then the Lord brought back my last memory in Polynesia was being on the ATV and thinking, I'm too far left, I'm too far left. Mm. And so I finally accepted that truth uh, about two hours after you talked to me, mm. and um, and I want to say that was on the 23rd of August. And I think the next day you wheeled mom up in a wheelchair to my room, and that was my first real visitor. Yeah. 23rd was, uh, uh, no, it was the 24th when you saw him on Wednesday, right? And then I saw you on Friday. The 25th? Yeah, it was, um, it was one of those days, but it was supposed to be longer um, because mom had... They wouldn't let mom in until she had reached so many days negative. And then they went back and reread the French doctor's notes that was a translation error and had miscounted, and they were able to let mom in a day early. And so mom and I were actually sitting in the parking lot eating Five Guys. Shout out to Five Guys, not sponsored. And um, the nurse called mom and said, actually, you can come in today. So That's right. <clears throat> so we threw our bag of fries in the back seat and drove off and <laughs> wheeled mom up to see you. But, but how did we get that car? Do you remember? Yeah. So go ahead. So one of my high school best friends, Becky Gray, Rebecca Gray, um, called me and she's because she knew she knew I was in San Diego and she said, "Is there any chance you need a car? My dad's car is sitting out on the curb and you can have it for an." indefinite length of time. Mm, so we yeah. had a rental car. I mean, God Just really took care of everything. Yeah. You had yeah, Kim there to, to house you in between the hospital and the Fisher house. And then we had this car for, for me. She picked me up from um, when I got to base. And, and so uh, we could trade that off. And right. then we were able to use that to trade off with uh, Nate. and uh, Yeah, and we had the Zieglers there. So Clay and I met in San Diego at yeah. his, uh, when he was, his first squadron. And, um, so he's got all these buddies here. So the Ziegler's Ralph and Judy, Julie yeah. were our, um, airport back and forth, back and forth, right. you know? Yeah. Just a blessing, a huge blessing. So, um, yeah. So dad, when they pulled the tube out, you were able to whisper, you kind of pulled the nurse down to your mouth and you whispered something when you first got the tube out of your mouth. Do you want to share what that was, mom? Yeah, Dad doesn't remember. <laughs> but in this raspy, he's got to puff, puff it out, right? Half co- He goes, I'm Lieutenant Commander Miller. Where's my wife? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the, uh, that's, that's, Dad knew he was in a military hospital because he had on the sign outside his room, it said Lieutenant Commander Miller, and all of the doctors and nurses would introduce themselves, not as I'm Dr. So-and-so, it, it was I'm Commander So-and-so, I'm, I'm uh, HM1, so-and-so. And so dad had sub- somehow subconsciously knew that he was in a, a military environment again. And so he used his title to, <laughs> where's my wife? <laughs> so it was fun because um, I think you were still there the next day. So it must have been Saturday and you were about to leave and um, Nate tag off with you. and um, Or maybe it was when Nate was already here, but I'm... 
I'm up early because I really was still having a hard time sleeping because I was still in quite a bit of pain. And um, I was up early and I was doing my quiet time, sitting in bed doing my quiet time. My phone buzzes with a text. It's like, it's like seven in the morning. And he says, I'm up. You can come up whenever you want. (laughs) (laughs) So they had taken me off of ketamine. So the hallucinations were done. And I was rapidly embracing reality. (laughs) And and I was starting to, uh, and they've extubated me, taking the ventilation out. Um, But prior to that, I had a couple visitors, and I always feel bad for one in particular. There's a Navy, retired Navy captain, uh, Ken Canetti, and he was uh, stationed in uh, San Diego, and he went to, um, he was a a good friend of my brother, John. Anyway, he came to visit me, but he had his mask on. Sam's friend. Sorry, Sam's friend. And he came to visit me, and (laughs) and he walked into the room and sat down next to me with his mask on. And he just looked like any other doctor that had walked into the room. And he was standing there, and he was just sitting there and saying, you know, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine, sir. And, you know, or I, I don't remember what I said. And um, anyway, it wasn't until he finally pulled, he goes, Clay, this is Ken. And he pulled his mask down so I could see his face. I thought he was a doctor, and I was asking him to, you know, get me some food or <laughs> get, get me some something to drink morphine. or some ice chips or something. But your eyes were so, so dilated. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, when Tim? we brought mom in the first time, and when I came in to see you, you were you were still hallucinating. I mean, you were, yeah. your eyes, yeah, dilated. You couldn't see Looking straight. up at the ceiling, you were freaking out. Yeah. And so I, I trying was, to write things on the whiteboard and just writing over yourself. And, and, yeah, and I told everybody going up, I said, please introduce yourself first. Tell him who you are because he can't see. Yeah, Ken left, and after he left, I realized it, it was Ken, and I just felt horrible that this guy had driven all the way down there to see me. And this is a redemption episode. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Ken, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> but for the first um, three or four days after I woke up, I was still in that COVID environment, and everybody that walked in the room—nurse, doctor, visitor—they all had to mask up and suit up and glove up. And sometimes they would they do that. It would take like two minutes to get all this paraphernalia on. And then they would walk in and go, oh, dang, I forgot my stethoscope or something. And they'd go out and pull all this stuff off and throw it in a trash can, <laughs> go get their stethoscope and, then stethoscope and then come back and then mask up and glove up and everything. And I kept thinking, man, I wish I'd invested in these, you know, the mask and apron companies or something. <laughs> but finally the COVID uh, episode was over with. Again, like Bev said, I never felt any symptoms of it. And then people could come and go without having to, you know, put on put on stuff. And I started to get a lot of visitors at that point. People would come and uh, sit with me for a little while and just uh, pray with me. And um, and I could, you know, whisper things back to them. It was great. So, And at the Fisher House... Um, you know, we had given our address at the Fisher House because people were asking. We were getting packages daily, multiple packages. And we had uh, the the Fisher House staff were just amazed. They were like, we have never seen this. We have never seen, uh, you know, house guests get this much mail. And so it's truly a testimony to our friends and our brothers and sisters all around the world because... It it was 
overwhelming in a good way that they were just, that, that was what they could do to take care of us. And, um, Starbucks cards, you know, things like that, that just were, you know, prayer blankets. It was just amazing. And then again, visitors from when we both lived there, you know, and, and from my life there in San Diego. But Mm -hmm. I think just to have people come and pray with us, Mm -hmm. people speak truth into our lives, people hug us. And, um, like I said, we had, you know, you guys all rotated out. So after you left, Nate came and, um, that was on a Saturday. And then, um, Monday Clay's brother came, Sam. And, um, so Nate was able to stay in my room with me. Um, and Sam stayed at Ken's house and because of this car, we could, we were very free to go all over the place. And, um, and then after that week, um, Jess's dad, Mark came and spent the week with me. And then by that time, and, and, Clay's doctors had told me right from the get-go, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to speak straight with you. Don't get your hopes up that he's coming home before October 1st and probably more likely October, middle of October or late October. And so I was prepared for that. And the Fisher, at first I was thinking, well, do I go home? Do I go home and then just fly back and forth to see dad or and the Fisher house was so amazing. And so I, that's when I said, I'm staying, I'm staying for the duration. I don't need to be home, you know? And, um, by the time Steven came down, he was my next guy on the line to babysit. <laughs> and by that time, dad had been moved out of the ICU into his acute rehab. And Steven said, well, there's my vacation cut short <laughs> two days rather than we were going to go to the zoo and SeaWorld. And <laughs> yeah. so, but it was interesting. And then I'll let Clay tell the rest of this story. It was interesting when the caseworkers started talking to me about moving him straight from the ICU to the acute um, rehab, because I thought in my mind, there is no way, there is no way. But he um, kept showing us, like he was standing to use the toilet. He was uh, walking the ward and all this kind of stuff. And really they had said, if they had had a step-down bed, they would have put him in it. But there wasn't one available, so they kept him in the ICU. Yeah. But well, that was very nerve-wracking. So, And I know it was nerve-wracking for you, Clay, that they were moving you so quickly. I was in a sea collar so I was, I could only lay on my back. I couldn't turn. My ribs were broken. When the nurses would change my sheets out, they would roll me over on my left side and I would scream. It was so painful. We didn't know then that my shoulder was broken. I, I think now that's what the reason it was so painful. Then they'd roll me over my right side and it wasn't comfortable, but it didn't hurt as much. Then they'd pull the, you know, the dirty sheet out and put in a new sheet. But I always had to sleep on my back, and um, the sea collar that I was wearing, the only way to describe it was it was intolerable. It, all I wanted to do was be out of it. And uh, the, the orthopedic surgeon, um, as I began to understand what was wrong with me, the orthopedic surgeons, I got to know the doctors, and one of them said, you know, the good news is you'll be out of that sea collar by August by September 6th, you'll be in it for, for 30 days and you're coming out of it on September 6th. So I was literally counting the days, October 6th, September 6th. 
So I was counting the days. I'm like, okay, five more days I can do this, Lord. Just give me the strength. You know, now four more days I can do it. And on September the 1st, he walked in. He goes, well, I've got uh, good news and bad news. He goes, the good news is we're going to move you out of here tomorrow to an acute rehab hospital uh, because they're going to work with you to, to do therapy to get you, you know, out of back home. The bad news is you've got to keep that C collar on for 90 days until November 6th. And I just started crying. I, I thought, I, I can't do this anymore. Mm. And uh, I've told people since then, if I, if I didn't know the Lord, that was probably the moment when I would want to take my life. I mean, it just was, if people have been in a C collar before, they know what I'm talking about. But it was just, it's just, like being trapped, you know, and you can do it for an hour, but to do it, but to sleep in it and to, anyway, uh, the doctors had explained to me my neck was broken. I was so thirsty. All I wanted to do was drink coconut um, milk. I don't know why, but probably because we just came from Polynesia and I wanted to drink uh, Werner's ginger ale. And then I had this uh, craving for a lime juice. And so I had Nate get me a fresh lime and cut it up into quarters and he'd bring me a piece each day and I'd squeeze it and suck it and suck the juice out. And, uh, it just felt good to have something in my mouth, but the nurses and doctors wouldn't let me eat anything or drink anything except like a little spoonful of ice chips I could let melt in my mouth because they were afraid that it would aspirate into my lungs. Mm. So twice they took me down to this, um, they kept doing imaging on me. I probably have had more CAT scans and MRIs and x-rays. They did this barium swallow where they made a movie of me swallowing barium. And they showed me that about, you know, one or 2% of that didn't go into my stomach. It went into my lungs. And so they said, until all of it goes into your stomach, we can't let you eat or drink anything. So I was discouraged uh, because of that. But then on the second, um, they said, hey, we're moving you to a, another hospital. And the name of it was South Bay Rehab. Par- Paradise Valley Rehab. Well, it was called South Bay Rehab in Paradise Valley. And uh, the ambulance drivers came, and they took me away in this gurney that was designed for children. I was way too big for the gurney. <laughs> and I, we're bouncing around, going down Interstate 5, and they didn't realize that it was in National City because there's another one in Chula Vista. So they took me to the one in Chula Vista, which was not the one I'm supposed to go to. And they took me out and they rolled, rolled me through this thing. And it was a heat wave. The air conditioning was broken in this facility. And I just, I wanted to cry because I thought, I can't stay here. All the patients were out in the hallway, sitting in chairs with fans blowing on them. The nurses all looked discouraged and depressed. And uh, the ambulance drivers are like, which room do we put him in? And they're like, we don't even know it, where who he is. And finally, one of the nurses said, I think you're looking for South Bay in National City. And they go, okay. So they put me back in the ambulance and drove me down there. And it was a really nice, more modern hospital with air conditioning. And mm. they put me in a room, and the staff there were nothing short of being wonderful. And... Um, and I was there from September 2nd until September 10th. In, a, in that week, they did physical therapy twice a day, uh, occupational therapy twice a day, where I learned how to get dressed and go to the bathroom and take a shower. 
um, recreational therapy uh, once a day, and um, and then speech therapy. And then at some point, they took me up to imaging for my third barium swallow, and this one I passed. And some dear friends in uh, on Woodby Island, Kevin and Stephanie Bloss, had uh, gone on Amazon and bought me a case of Werner's ginger ale and had it shipped to the hospital. And they had put it in the refrigerator, and so they brought me a can, and we made a little video of me cracking the uh, can and with a straw and <laughs> enjoying this Werner's ginger ale, which is from Detroit, Michigan, something that's from my mom's side of the family. It was so sweet. It was so delicious. And then from that point forward, they began to bring me food, meals, you know, three meals a day. And uh, we drank a lot of ginger ale <laughs> during that time. <laughs> and uh, and the week went by pretty quick. Um, my brother Sam uh, left and went back home. Nate went back home. And uh, Bev's brother Mark and Brad uh, came down to visit. And then uh, near the end of it, my son Stephen uh, came down. And then on the 10th, they discharged me. We went to the um, uh, back to the Fisher House for one night. And then we booked a flight on Alaska Airlines from San Diego to Seattle. And Stephen helped uh, push me there. You know, the, the airlines got me a wheelchair. And and, uh, and that was a concern uh, because at that point in my medical life, I needed to be near a, a restroom pretty close. And I was panicking that if I sat in coach class and I was, you know, like 20 rows away from the restroom, I wouldn't make it in time. And I was also wondering, how am I going to endure? I could I could not sit in a chair for more than 15 minutes without going into serious pain. So they'd given us morphine tablets, and uh, Bev was pumping morphine and, and uh, talking with Jessica and getting medical advice. And uh, anyway, we, we got into first class. We were literally right next to the restroom, which I never ended up having to use. And uh, the morphine sedated me for the whole three-hour flight. Mm. Stephen was really good about getting both of us wheelchairs because by that point I was on a walker, but I couldn't. There's no way I could have walked, you know, from the airport into the all the way to the plane. So he had orchestrated um, wheelchairs for us going, uh, and then also up in SeaTac. Mm. And um, so we get on the airplane, and Jess. I'm in contact with Jess before we get on the airplane. She goes, give, give uncle clay his morphine 45 minutes before you get, you guys get on the airplane. So 45 minutes later, I'm, he is still in distress. He's like, you know, he's a pilot and he's like, what in the world has taken these guys so long to get off this tarmac? You know and I'm thinking? Okay. I've never seen him agitated like this. Mm. And clay's a pretty calm guy. And, um, so I'm texting Frantically, before they make me put my phone on airplane mode, I'm texting Jess. Jess, what do I do? What do I do? And she says, "Give him, give him some Tylenol, and then an hour later, if he, if his pain is still above a five, give him the, give him the next um, uh, morphine." And so, Stephen, you can see Stephen sitting across the aisle from us, and we're both just very agitated ourselves. That what are we going to do? He's in so much pain, and so. Um, all of a sudden, the plane starts backing up from the gate, and Clay's got his headphones on, listening to one of his spy sh- novels, I'm sure. And um, I see him falling asleep, and I'm like, "Oh, thank you, God, because that would have been a long flight." Mm-hmm. 
So that was perfect. And even coming home from SeaTac, we have a two-hour drive from SeaTac mm-hmm. to the island. Yeah. And um, he's he was doing okay in the back seat of the car, kind of reclining in the back seat of the car. Can I just say that, um, you know, I didn't have a magic eight ball this whole time, but we, the whole time, especially Tim and I were really trying to like guess like how long from the first minute that we knew there was something wrong, like, well, how long is this going to be in Tahiti? How long is this going to be in the States? How long till they're home? And I just, for the, you know, my, I had all my bets on you all being in the ICU or ICU step down for at least a couple weeks. Um, and when I talked to the doctors, you know, I think it was like Monday or Tuesday, I thought there were still signs of maybe sepsis. And so he got through this huge complication and got to the States. But I was like, you know, he's not out of the woods for other complications. But lo and behold, like, you know, one week later, you were off all of your meds extubated, discharged from the ICU, out of the hospital, into a rehab facility. And then a week <laughs> a week later, they're like, he's doing jumping jacks pretty much. Like, we're ready to boot him out. <laughs> Not quite jumping jacks. <laughs> pretty much. You know, I thought maybe two weeks there. Um, but really, you, you all just uh, recover very well. Which was, is really yeah. amazing because Sunday, the 21st, when I got to Balboa, um, it was that night. No, it was the next morning and his doctors came to see me and I said, um, can you tell me, I know he's still in the woods, but how far in the woods is he? And the doctor looked at me and he said, he's deep in the woods. It's still, that's in San Diego. It's still touch and go. And that's when he said, don't, please don't get your hopes up that you'll be home before October. And, um, Clay said, hold my beer. Yeah. Hold, hold my, <laughs> hold my, my ginger ale. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, when the, um, when the caseworker started talking to me about getting him to this rehab, I was a little freaked out, but she gave me two options. She said, there's this one over here, um, that will, you know, we don't recommend that because he might see a PTOT once a day. And certainly not during the weekends. But this one, he'll see them twice a day and the weekends. And she said, we all think he's ready for this one. I said, then get him into that one. Mm -hmm. And so we get there. The first one was an ugly uh, rehab. The second one was an acute rehab. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Dad joke. (laughs) So when we get there, the staff asks me, and your dad's here with me by that point. And the staff asks me, what are your goals? Like, do you want to get him home and check him into another acute when you're up there? Or what? what is your goal? I said, my goal is to get him to the point where he can be home with me. And then if we can get, uh, you know, a, a nurse a couple times a week to check on him, things like that. But I want him at home. And um, they said, okay, we'll do that. So I'm thinking, and your dad's thinking, okay, it's going to be a couple weeks. And we were told it was a couple weeks in the rehab. And then... Um, uh, let's see, it was Saturday you were checked in. By Sunday night, his doctor comes in and says, well, on Wednesday, we're going to have a meeting with all of his caregivers and um, therapists, and we want we need you to be there, and we're going to talk about his proto- the protocol for the rest of his time here. And we think he's going to be dismi- discharged by, by next weekend. And I told your dad, Mark, I said, this is really freaking me out. I can't imagine that he's coming home. I mean, at this point, he had not passed his swallow test. Um, and so I thought, I cannot take him home 
without him being able to swallow completely and all this other stuff. And um, your dad said to me, I, I know what you're feeling, Bev, but these guys are professionals. It's not their first rodeo. Trust them. And so here we are in this meeting on Wednesday with all of these therapists and everything. And they're going one by one by one by one around the room. And when it came to me, I said, I, I just have to tell you that I'm very, this makes me very nervous to take him home so soon. And they said, we, he, we gave him a list of goals and he has passed all of them except the swallow test. And so once he passed the swallow test, we were good to go. Mm-hmm. So what day do you remember when that swallow test was? Uh, we got discharged on the 10th, so it was probably the 6th or the no, 7th. it was Friday, the day right before. We, we had to drive you over to Balboa. It was Friday the 10th. I mean, Friday the 9th, sorry. Friday the 9th, we drove you over to Balboa, um, Mark I think, and I. I think it was earlier because I ate food inside rehab for about three days. There was like three days worth of meals. We even ate out in the courtyard twice. Right. Might have had to have two. I, th- I remember there was some yeah. sort of holdup where it was like, we really want to fly back before or this oh, weekend or something. And there was something where like... You're right. It was your ear. Extra. Oh, that's Yeah, what it I'm was. wrong. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. your ear. It was not clear. I couldn't clear my ear, so the concern was I couldn't go up to altitude in an airplane. No. That was pressurized. Yeah, to yeah you're right. Feet, so. You're right. So it was like yeah. maybe the fourth or so. The, the barium swallow test that six. I passed was probably around... The fourth or fifth. That was your first meal. Yeah, and then they took me back up to. Uh, took me in a car up to Balboa. Mark, to see, took, we had to drive you to see yeah. the ENT, and they did a scope down to my, see my larynx to make sure that it was clear. And then they scoped my or they looked in my ear to make sure I could clear my ears, and they pronounced me good to go. So it it had been literally almost exactly a month without food. Would you recommend that diet? Uh, yeah. <laughs> to <No>. people. <laughs> I lost 30 pounds, and I tell people, you don't want to break your neck to lose 30 pounds. Oh, it's a pound a day, basically. It was the only one. Wow. So that uh, brought you here. You guys are here, and now we're several months in advance. And, yeah, I don't think any of us are, are um, ever expected you to be walking around and, you know, fully capable of doing all your own stuff and – and not only that, you're back in ministry, back doing work. You you guys just got a little puppy, uh, which I thought was ludicrous, but it's keeping you alive. And it's our therapist. It's your therapy. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, just what a, an amazing and quick journey that has been. Looking back on just such a serious and significant accident. Can I just back up to when we got home on the 11th? It was nighttime. It was pretty late at night. And um, the whole family was there to greet us and the grandkids. And um, there's a big poster out front. The kids had... Jeffrey Humphreys had yeah. donated a poster to welcome us home. Yeah. And the kids had chalked on the driveway a big um, handicapped parking, parking, parking spot. spot, you know. And <laughs> it just was good to be home. It was so, so good to be home. And I think our... Healing accelerated after that. Yeah, yeah. So um, we can do multiple episodes on more details later, like recommendations and how you would expect uh, uh, 
for folks that are in similar situations. How many stars would we give each hospital? Yeah, stars, and talk about more of the details of the the medical side. But I want to um, <clears throat> I want to pivot into more of the faith in this. You both were, you both are believers and and were believers prior to this accident. You were are both strong uh, husband and wife and man and woman of God prior to this. Did this accident affect any of that? Did it amplify anything in your faith? Did it um, enlighten or enhance any of your goals or where you have seen your life um, in your 60s now and uh, what that looks like for your time going forward from here? Um, Sort of a, a past and future. Bev? Well, while I was in Reatea, before I'd gotten to Tahiti, in one of my quiet times I read um, about the yoke, uh, you know, Jesus's yoke. And um, I said, Lord, I want to yoke myself with you. Um, and remember I said that, you know, since I was 11, I had said, I'd called you Lord, but what does it really mean to be yoked together with you as you do your work. And so I was um, I was just meditating on when you're about ready to plant something, just all the work that goes in, that's involved in getting the soil ready, you know, removing rocks, removing weeds, getting the soil ready, um, planting, watering, weeding, all of that, and it, how it takes months and months. And I said, Lord, I, I will plant with you. You just, I'm just going to keep my eyes on you in this yoke and, um, it will be, it will be your agenda, not mine. And, um, my friend Holly said er, later when I shared that with her, she said, um, well, what do you think the, what do you think you're planting? And I said, I'll get back to you on that. Give me, give me a day or two. And so um, a couple of days later, I called her and I said, I think God is, I think we're planting faithfulness, hmm. uh, increasing Bev's faith and, um, and understanding the faithfulness of God and Bev being faithful. Hmm. And so um, that kind of became my cornerstone, um, this idea of God is always faithful. Bev is not. And um, so how do I, how do I increase my faithfulness? Um, I stay in the Word. Truly, truly, it's all about the Word of God. And my, one of my verses that I clung to is um, Isaiah, now I'm going to forget it, but 26, Isaiah 20, thank you, 26, verses 3 and 4, it says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace, because he trusts in you. Hmm. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. So I'm going to break it down, and I, I would ask myself, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. Who? The steadfast in mind, because he trusts in you. And so my part is to trust in the Lord forever, verse 4. Because why? Because God, the Lord, is my everlasting rock. 
And I started thinking, Lord, it does. I'm never promised another second in this life. I've never promised another breath in this life. I've never promised, a, you know, a, a certain amount of days. But you, you tell me to be faithful. And so in the um, day-to-day, waking up, not knowing what that day, what would unfold during that day, I thought, Lord, it's you and me. Mm. We're, we're plowing, we're planting, we're cultivating. And I said, because I'm yoked with you, I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And um, please increase my faith. It's like the father in, in the Gospel of Mark that says, Lord, I do believe but help my unbelief. And so it was um, truly for me, it was a strengthening of that faith. And so I started um, journaling all of this. And and I think at one point, Tim, you were putting it all, you were updating everybody, you know, in our ministry. Clay and I are part of the navigators here on Whidbey Island. So you were you were keeping everybody up to date on what was going on, and and when I got to Tahiti, I said, Tim, I'll take that off your hands. I'll do that. And so really, what I was doing is journaling my quiet time mm. and whatever verses the Lord gave me. Often my quiet times generally are in a book of the Bible or something, but this one was very much. The Lord was giving me a verse every morning when I woke up. I wasn't searching for it. He was giving me a verse every morning, and I would meditate on that verse during the day and that would become my journal entry that night cool awesome dad so i'm a pilot so i made a checklist that's (laughs) that's how i roll which is which is perfect since that's how we got you out for your checklist uh that we had talked about your detailed checklist of always leave a trip plan for those of you listening if you're going anywhere leave a trip plan yeah, that helped us have out on our honeymoon, system. too. So I came up with, tw- <clears throat> I made this list uh, right when I got home from um, California, and I was still in my sea collar, which, by the way, did not need to stay on for 90 days. Uh, it wasn't like a week or two after we got back. I, we made an appointment with a neurosurgeon, and he ordered another MRI, and I came in one day with my C collar on, and and he goes, "Take that thing off." He goes, "The radiologist doesn't even see any signs of a prior fracture," so we brought it home and burned it up in our campfire ring. It was so so <laughs> such a joy. But twelve things that the Lord taught me, you know, in this situation. Number one, God is good, and uh, that this accident did not catch him by surprise. It's not that God didn't see it coming. He knew before the foundation of the world that we were going to go to Polynesia and travel to Bora Bora and be on an ATV and be in this accident. He knew that was going to happen ahead of time, and he arranged all uh, Jessica and Nate and the doctors and the nurses and Samantha and uh, everybody. He arranged all this stuff so that we would go through this with him. And then number two is, as Bev said, we need to stay yoked with Jesus and cultivate faithfulness. You know, Christ is the one that said, take my yoke up upon you for its light. And there's this tradition out there uh, or legend out there that Christ was a, Jesus was the son of a carpenter, and maybe, just maybe, one of the things he used to do was make yokes and sell them to people. And maybe he had the reputation of having the strongest but lightest yokes. Mm-hmm. 
And if you're, you know, if you're an animal, a beast of burden, wouldn't you like to have a light yoke? You know, and Jesus's yokes are light. And Jesus said in that same passage, he says, for I'm humble and gentle and learn, you know, learn from me. So Christ was humble and gentle with us. Number three, my joy is not dependent upon my feelings. Uh, there was a lot of times when we were in distress, uh, but we still had joy. And even when I, anyway, number four, God leads me. He doesn't just send me out. He is the good shepherd who leads from the front. And if you look, look at the Psalm 23 that Bev alluded to earlier, look at the verbs. You know, he leads me by the still waters. He goes with me through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't send me out there by myself. So God's with me. You know, Christ is with me all, all the way along this journey. Number five, God loves me well, using the body of Christ that, are, that is other believers. Um, and he, Christ, God loved me through the body of Christ, having believers uh, serve our family, you know, and having our family that's saved serve us was just like God giving us a big hug, you know, through his own body. And we're called the body of Christ. It's pretty cool. And I wrote down here that this feature of the Christian life, which stems out of intimate fellowship, is essential to recovery and restoration. It's just a kind of a challenge out there for Christians who like to live outside the camp and kind of be by themselves and not, uh, you know, kind of those Christians who avoid fellowship. Boy, when you get into a situation like we were in, you need the body of Christ. So the the time to cultivate those friendships and relationships is now. Mm. Number six, scripture memory works even when you're trapped in a bed and under the influence of hallucinogens. (laughs) So I can remember... I can't remember my medical coma, but I can remember my ketamine sedation and in uh, panicking this you know whole time for about two and a half days, but having you know being able to go back and and quote in my mind verses that God had given me and and I had memorized earlier that came back to encourage me. Mm. Number seven, scripturally based Christian music helps calm a distressed soul. And there were three songs that really helped me. One was uh, In the Morning by J.J. Haller. Um, another one is Show Me by Audre Assad. And another one is Is He Worthy by Andrew Peterson. And uh, I would listen to these songs over and over and over again and literally weep. In fact, I weep just thinking about it. One of the songs uh, by J.J. Haller was... Uh, it was really special when I was in the hospital. I, I was intubated, and it was really it was giving me hope. And I and then I I couldn't get to my phone to see what the name of the song was or who the singer was, mm-hmm. so I could kind of describe it to Bev, and we looked it up, you know, tried to remember some of the words, and we couldn't find it. And she said, "Well, maybe it's the song that that God just wrote just for you, and it doesn't really exist, you know, out there." and one day when we were back, I was laying in bed in our bedroom, and the song came on. It was on Pandora. It was on one of the stations I was listening to, and that song came on, and it was just, it was all, it was good again. So, mm-hmm. number eight, having a dear family member or brother or sister in Christ sit in my field of view because I was wearing my C collar and I couldn't move my head. 
but you know, sit where I could actually see them and physically hold my hand and pray for me was extremely powerful and comforting. I wrote down here, I've wept for joy more in the past 42 days when I wrote this and in my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I'm just convinced now it's just my soul healing. <laughs> Number nine, we're not just a physical body. We are created in God's image, so we're spirit and soul too. And in crisis situations like this, having loved ones minister to all of me was extremely beneficial. Mm-hmm. Number 10, leaving a detailed trip plan with a trusted advocate is invaluable. Left with our son, Tim, and he immediately orchestrated our rescue and medevac starting on the day of the accident. Uh, number 11, 62, is a good age to stop doing risky things. Um, you know, the cost wasn't just for Bev and I. I mean, there was a cost to Jessica and Nate and Tim and, you know, and everybody else that had to stop what they were doing to help us. You know, not to mention the helicopter pilot and the airplane pilots and, you know, everybody else. And all the taxpayers that paid our Tricare bill, thank you if you're, if you're listening. <laughs> um, but I, we just need to be more careful and more wise. Number 12, final one, the Lord desires gratitude in every situation, not just when we're happy. Uh, two great verses that come to mind are Philippians 2, uh, 4, 6, and 7. It says, be anxious for nothing. And another translation says, worry about nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding or surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Mm. God wants us to pray with thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God wants us to be thankful. And so I started thinking, what are things to be thankful for? And I started actually writing them down, and that's been healing for me to be able to sit there and meditate on the things that God's done through me or for me, mainly through other people. And I just appreciate all that. Mm-hmm. So that's what God's taught me so far. Amen. Amen. Can I just add yeah. on to that thankfulness? Um, it was one of the days, I think it was when you told me, Tim, that dad could flip either way. Yeah. And I thought there's a verse, Hebrews thirteen fifteen, and, um, it says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And I started that every day, you know, five things, six things, seven things, whatever, a list daily of thanking God um, every day. And it totally, it, it's not easy, and that's why it's called a sacrifice. Mm. But it's, um, and it's a sacrifice to him because he deserves all the thanks and the and the glory, but um, it changes it it changes your mindset a hundred percent when you start listing the thanks, the things to be thankful for. It it changes you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amen. So now looking to the future, I see you've got a list in front of you of uh, bucket list items. <laughs> Obviously, no ATV things on there, but. Um, as you guys are planning together now for um, the remainder of your future in both ministry and what that looks like for uh, yourself specifically, how has this accident influenced that? And do you still expect to travel 
a lot? Do you still expect to go do things? Do you still expect to, um, how has that affected or changed your ministry and your focus? Those kinds of things. Yeah, I, um, you know, there's a passage in the New Testament I was trying to remember. It's in James or Peter. He says, you know, we don't make any plans for the future. We, we say, if the Lord wills. But back in 2017, uh, Bev and I went on a date to a park up in uh, Skagit County, up on the uh, Skagit River. I think it starts with an R, Rest. Rockport? No, it's near there. It's a oh, Razor. Razor Park. And we had a barbecue, and we sat down and we said, what is it we'd like to do, you know, if the Lord tarries and we have some more time together, what are some things that we would like to do? And, and uh, one of those things was to go to, um, you know, that we added on there was to go to Tahiti and Polynesia and go visit, you know, where um, the mutiny on the bounty took place. So that's why, why we went down there. But we had some other things, too, which we've already done, and we have some more things that we want to do. And to be honest, uh, Bev and I both want to go back to Tahiti and finish our vacation. Um, <laughs> we just don't want to go on any ATVs anymore. Um, and really, it wasn't because the ATV was dangerous. It was just I, I, I was, I did something. There was some pilot error involved, and I did something wrong. Instead of braking, I accelerated. But we would like to continue to you know travel and see a few things that the Lord's created and meet some people that the Lord created. So uh, on our list is to go back to visit uh, Tahiti and Polynesia. Wow. Jess, what do you think of that? Take me with you. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, we'll bring our whole team with us. Uh, We want to go back to visit uh, Capri and maybe Port de Solaire in Mallorca, Spain. Uh, Visit the the Amalfi Coast in Italy. I've I've been there four or five times now, and uh, I just love the food and the people. So we'd like to do that. Uh, we're talking, we're in negotiations right now with Jessica's parents to go back to visit Ireland again and maybe go over to the uh, Isle of Mull in Scotland and go to stay at that castle again. In fact, uh, Bev and I were just watching a movie the other night about uh, Ireland, and it made us long to go back there because it was so beautiful and the mm-hmm. people are so friendly. We want to uh, drive up to Alaska on the Alaska Highway, and then maybe fly back. We don't want to go up and have to drive back again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I wrote down, I would love to visit Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, a whaling museum in New Bedford, Plymouth Rock, and then drive up to the Anne of Green Gables Museum at Silverbush on Prince Edward Island. We'd like to take a river cruise in Europe somewhere. We want to rent a car and drive around the Baltic Sea with uh, Seth and Becky because she's Norwegian, uh, Norwegian descent, and uh, and then take a cruise up to Norway to see a fjord uh, with her and Seth and maybe even her parents. Um, you know, th- so those are some things that we'd like to do. Lord willing, we'd we'd love to do those things again. And I think the accident hasn't diminished any of those desires, you know, or caused any of those plans to be canceled. They're just in the future now. Mm. Um, we need to maybe take a few more months to completely heal up before we start talking about traveling again. At least. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I would say that uh, it's probably, I'm the one putting the brakes on more than dad. Um, <laughs> we had a plan to go through the Panama Canal on a cruise, and I thought, I am not in the mindset right. to leave right now. And a uh, month ago, 
we were thinking you were going to need shoulder surgery. And so we had wanted to get to Juno to visit Nate and Sarah and the kids. And um, we thought, well, if we don't go now before your shoulder surgery, we're not going to go till after Christmas. So Clay's on the phone with Nate and he says, um, let's, I, I hear them saying, oh, okay, we'll come tomorrow. Okay, we'll get our tickets. And I'm on the couch <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, okay. And after this whole trip, and it was just a five-day trip, but I'm still doing all the driving because dad can't really move his neck. Yeah. And so I'm driving home in the dark from SeaTac two hours, and I'm thinking, I hate driving in the dark, you know, on this <laughs> island. Deer everywhere. <clears throat> and... um I lay my head on the pillow and I go, my body just tenses up and starts shaking. And I think, what in the world did we just do? And I thought if we had had a week to think about it, I probably would have put the brakes on it. I'm not going, you know, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it'll be interesting. You asked about our ministry. We have a couple of conferences that we'll go to in the fall, in the spring. Well, one in February and one in March. And even me thinking about flying to yeah. Washington, D.C. in February is a little uncomfortable for me. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it seems like, it seems like if anything, the Lord has used this to reach more of his people. Of course, strengthen and encourage you guys through this process as well. But um, being on this end and just being in contact multiple times a day and night with all of your friends and family and all of uh, <clears throat> the big support network throughout this time and getting to see how much love and care was poured out for you and concern um, and how the Lord has touched the lives of all of these people, plus all of the, the hospital staff and people you came into contact with specifically. All of that um, was just such an encouragement. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll get to heaven someday and, and the new earth and we'll get to re- revisit a lot of this, which will be cool and kind of see where all of the threads went and all of the encouragement through all of this, but um, it'll be a neat uh, experience. So any other closing thoughts or things as we listen to the background noise of... The cat food dispenser. Oh, the cat Sorry. Dispenser. <laughs> Jessica's cat food dispenser. This is a professional podcast, if I didn't mention that at the beginning. One of my uh, go-to verses uh, in all this is, and it was bef- even before the accident, is Psalm 138, 8a, the first part of it. The writer says, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Mm. And uh, when I was in the Navy for 24 years, it was always the Navy sending me here, sending me there. And, you know, we just took orders and we, we did them. But the Lord is my detailer, and he sends me where, and he allows me to experience things. And, um, you know, it's just a, it's a peaceful verse for me that the Lord never leaves me. He'll accomplish for me what, what concerns me. He's got my best interest in mind, and I trust him, and I love him for that. So, I think for me, um, you kind of asked, so ministry-wise, where is this taking us? And Clay and I have, um, since before we were married, we have been taught how to disciple people. We have been discipled in you know walking the Christian life, and it's something we've done our entire married life. And um, we do it up here on Whidbey Island with the Navigators. And um, uh, it wasn't, I don't know why, but it wasn't until 
probably three years ago that I really understood the parable in Matthew 20 about uh, when the guy who owns the vineyard and he goes out and he hires people at the in the morning to work, then he hires people in the in the um, noontime, and then he hires people in the afternoon, and they all get the same payment. And it never, it, I never understood that. I, I mean, uh, what I understood about it was God is God and He can do what He wants. He can pay what He wants. Yeah. Well, it wasn't until, like I said, three years ago, that I'm like wait a minute, I heard a sermon on it. And it was like, no, the vineyard is the world. And people who become Christians, who receive Christ in the morning, like me, 11 years old, I have the entire day to share the gospel and to work in the Father's vineyard for everlasting fruit. And then there's people that really literally received Christ on their deathbed. My uncle Don mm-hmm. that literally received Christ and the next day he died. Mm-hmm. And he's the guy hired at the end of the day. Well, what's the payment? Eternal life. Mm-hmm. We all get the eternal life. But what I wasn't understanding is that I get the joy of mm-hmm. working and toiling with God for everlasting fruit mm-hmm. for all those years. And so... Um, my so where does that take me now? Um, still with the idea that there is work to be done here on earth. There are people that need Christ, and there are women and for clay men that need to learn how to walk with Jesus. Mm. They receive Christ, but they don't know how to walk with Jesus. Yeah, and toil in His vineyard, and so that's our work. Yeah, awesome. Amen. Well, this has been good. Jess, closing remarks. If I could play a six-minute song, it would be Andrew Peterson's Is He Worthy? (laughs) But I don't think that's appropriate at this time. Maybe we'll add that to the end of this episode. Just play it on your own. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Anavivo Podcast. We welcome your feedback and ideas. You can learn more about us by simply Googling the word Anavivo. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. I am a licensed real estate broker with Compass Real Estate and a nationwide real estate matchmaker. We consult with you for free, find and vet the right real estate professional that specializes in the area and niche you need, are paid by that professional, and they get clients like yourself who want and need their unique specialty or winning track record. If you or someone you know is in the market to buy or sell real estate anywhere in the U.S., don't simply web search the highest paying advertiser. Let us use our licensed experience to find and vet the real and best professional for you. It costs you nothing but a phone call or email with me and it saves my clients financially and emotionally. I'd be honored to serve and you can reach me direct by email at tim.c.miller at outlook.com. And as always, To God be the glory.